from 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Fintech Brex confirms a 12.3 billion valuation and snaps up a meta executive to serve as its head of product. Wahed debuts the first Sharia-compliant and ESG-aware uh, exchange-traded fund on NASDAQ. And Revolut launches as a bank in 10 Western European countries. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and give you a quick word from our sponsors. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at Primer.io. So, welcome to episode 594 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensel, and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Naz Ahmad. Thank you for joining us, Naz. How are you doing? Very well, thanks, Benjamin. Uh, I don't know if one can still say Happy New Year if it's too late, but Happy New Year to everyone. Might be too late by the time this recording goes out in a day or two, but Happy New Year to you and Happy New Year to all of our listeners who haven't heard a previous episode where we've wished them a Happy New Year. And of course, as always, we're joined by some very special guests. First up, making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Samim Abedi, Chief Investment Officer at Wahed. A very exciting week for you, and we'll come to that later in the show. But first, how are you doing? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, thank you guys for having me. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm actually sitting in an entirely empty WeWork floor in Midtown Manhattan on Madison Ave. But it's quite peaceful and nice here. But uh, beyond that, doing well. Things have obviously picked up after the new year. As you can imagine, with the press coverage and the multiple funds up, we, we have our, our hands full of it. So um, busy is good and, and excited to be here. Fantastic. And then making a welcome return for 2022, uh, we're also joined by Kate Drew, Director of Research at CCG Catalyst. Super excited to have you back on the show. Kate, how are you doing today? How's the start of the new year been for you? I'm doing well, thank you. I feel like I've just about been catapulted into January. Things are busy, busy, but uh, but very good. I know, it's uh, it's halfway through the month already, isn't it? And where's, where's the time gone? Okay, well, let's get into the news. So our first story uh, comes from the United States, uh, and this was reported in TechCrunch, among others. And this is that Brex has confirmed a $12.3 billion valuation and uh, snapped up a meta executive to serve as its head of product. So in the latest fintech capital raising mega round, Brex has confirmed that it's raised $300 million in a Series D2 round that ups its valuation to an astonishing $12.3 billion dollars. Its latest raise follows a year that saw a more than doubling of revenue, according to its co-CEO and co-founder, Enrique Dubugras, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, so apologies to all uh, Brazilian listeners, adding that existing investors made up about 95% of those uh, participating in the round. Brex has also announced that it has hired away an executive from Meta, previously Facebook, Karen Deep Anand. Anand has been named the company's chief product officer, having led Meta's business products group, which served more than 200 million businesses globally. So, Kate, I'd like to come to you first on this and get an analyst's perspectives on the sheer size of this valuation. What were your first thoughts when you saw this news? I think I am now numb to this kind of news. 
right? It just doesn't floor me uh, exactly the way that it used to. I mean, we're really just seeing huge valuations in technology and and fintech generally. Just for context, checkout.com also completed a new raise recently, valuing the company at nearly 40 billion. So that's, you know, what about three times the Brex valuation. And, you know, tied to this is is this phenomenon we've talked about a lot uh, before, right? Which is companies in, in the technology space being valued on on future growth. It's, you know, the Amazon effect. And what's really interesting is like Amazon many, many moons ago, a lot of these companies are are not profitable, but they're being given leeway because of their potential and because they're demonstrating that losses, you know, are are tied to investment and and to to R&D. And I think, you know, Brex definitely falls into that category. I, I actually wrote this down the last line of the of the TechCrunch article because I thought it was just so perfect in this article about, you know, this huge valuation and growing revenue. Uh, the last line of the article is because it is still focused on growth, it is not yet profitable. And I think that just completely sums it up, not just for Brex, but for the whole industry, you know, where the whole industry is right now in, in trading profitability for growth at these huge valuations. And clearly that's that's okay with investors, right? Because, you know, 95% of, of investors in the round were returning. Do you think it, it's relevant that Brex is focused on, on small businesses? Because, um, you know, the business case for sort of small business banking or, or medium-sized business has always been a bit different because smaller businesses are willing to pay or more used to paying fees than consumers. It's the competition, or, you know, the, the fees are not quite so tight. Do you think that's relevant to the valuation? Do you think Brex would have kind of got the same kind of valuation if it was focused on consumers? I mean, that's hard to say, right? Because we are seeing consumer-focused fintechs garnering huge valuations, right? Chime is an example. So I'm, I'm not sure about that because I don't think that we can say on the consumer side that we're not seeing it, but I'm sure that it was helpful. I mean, Brex does have a premium subscription product that is, I think, about $50 a month, right? And so it has definitely kind of benefited from from the ability to to charge its user base. So I think I think that's a really good point. And it'll probably continue, you know, especially with this new hire, continue to to build out products in that way, especially as it starts to go after larger businesses and institutions. One of the other really interesting things to me about Brex is that like many of the other um, American sort of banking disruptors. It's not actually a bank. I understand that back in February last year, Brex applied to the state of Utah to try and get a license, a charter, and then they decided not to, and then they withdrew that in in August. Um, Naz, or, or, or indeed um, uh, Kate, what, what do you think about that? Does it matter that they don't have a license? It doesn't seem to be holding back any of the banking disruptors in the states not having a license. It's, a license is just out of fashion, or is it just that the cost and complexity of getting licenses in the States is just a bit too much of a barrier? I think the cost of a license and the complexity that goes with it in the States and elsewhere is definitely a hurdle that you want to put off for as long as you can do until you have a compelling need to do so. Whether that's you want to use, you know, your own deposit base to fund lending or credibility or whatever it is. I think the reason you know, I you know, I think the reason so many people are going down this route is a the ease for the reason just stated but it'd be you know from a customer point of view the functionality is often the same particularly for you know day-to-day transactions so 
you know, there's no need. They can still put together a compelling proposition for customers without any of the uh, expense or burdens or indeed time that is needed to go for a, a full deposit taking license. Samim, Gary, I'd love to bring you in on this as well. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, prior to my role here, I spent six years at JP Morgan across kind of the, the investment bank asset management functions. I think to, to the last point we just spoke about, you know, actually getting a banking license, a lot of times might not matter. You know, I don't know that a lot of these firms are interested in sort of paying out deposit at overnight rates and lending out kind of along the curve. And, and I'm not really sure rates are necessarily conducive to tremendous upside from that. But also it puts them in the and sort of the uh, under the radar of the regulators once you do have a license and do function as a bank. So suddenly you're in a different uh, you're in a different league. And with that comes tons of scrutiny and requirements. And so yeah, it's a bit of a double edged sword. It obviously lets you take deposits. But I do think uh, that's why you're seeing a lot of players kind of move forward uh, without necessarily the license right away. Uh, and the second thing I'll, I'll comment on Kate's comment earlier, which I think is, is poignant, and it reminds me of a Silicon Valley episode, is when you're pre-revenue, you can sell aspirations and dreams, and that's what people are doing. And I think once you actually have an established revenue with with proven margins, at that point, it's in the numbers, right? And so, so long as you're not necessarily profitable yet, you can, you can sort of tell a story. Um, but this also just goes into... Kind of the valuations people are getting pre-IPO and pre-public. I mean, you know, you used to see sort of the Googles of the world and and similar ilk kind of come to market at small cap, mid cap market caps, and and now by the time these firms are are, are public, they're already large caps, and and they're already sort of almost ready to be in the in major indices as well. So it, it it's an unusual trend, but it's still going on. Um, and, you know, we kind of saw it last year as well. So um, more important ever to, I guess, get exposure in the, in the, private, in the private sector before companies are, are traded openly. And another thing here, Simi, I mean, you're, you're sitting in the, in the heart of New York and, and I'm not sure how close to the financial district you are. But you know, does this tell us something about how, how U.S. fintech funding is going to go on? I mean, uh, Kate mentioned uh, Checkout.com, you know, also raised uh, funds in the last week, tripling its valuation. There are a couple of others like Digital Bank Novo, Credit Card for the Underbank, Petal, raising funds. Is this going to be another you know, bumper year for, for U.S. fintechs? The stories are a little bit different when you start digging deep. And I'll, and I'll give you an example is, you know, on some cases, we're seeing data and users being valued tremendously. And by the way, not all users are the same, right? Users based in North America obviously have a higher kind of multiple and, and, and sort of lifetime revenue generation than necessarily someone from, let's say, an emerging market. But, you know, another one that comes to mind recently is, is Truebill that was kind of announced that it would be acquired by the rocket companies. And I believe the valuation on that was $1.3 billion, but the surprising thing there was they actually had 75 million in revenues. Kind of they were, and, and that had been up 50 to 100 times uh, percent since the year before. So th- there are stories like that as well, where, you know, 2 million clients, good revenue base, solid growth, but not necessarily getting that that kind of bump that maybe some other uh, some other payment processors or other fintechs are getting. So uh, certainly users are being valued and, and we know that for certain. Um, but I do think, you know, in the shakiness on the macro backdrop, I think companies that have that user growth, but can also show that, hey, we're, we're beyond break even and we actually are profitable and we're growing at a steady rate. I do think there'll be some discrimination going forward in terms of those companies because, you know, eventually 
kind of the faucet will have to dry up, particularly when sentiment flips. And that kind of happens very quickly. And when that happens, you'll you'll just see that reflected in appetite and, and kind of re-ups on, on subsequent rounds, right? It, it, there's no banner for it, but kind of the, you know, a, a series B or C round kind of gets extended a little bit. And maybe people that were in the previous rounds don't necessarily re-up a little bit. And and those sort of subtle hints are are kind of indicators that, that maybe something's going on beneath the hood. Are you placing uh, any bets on sentiment flips in the market overall, or just you just think particular companies will hit, hit turning points? You know, and, and in some ways, there's, there's so much cash still on the sidelines. In other ways, we are having you know, inflation scares, not just in the United States, but other places. And you are getting central banks that have to essentially pull back that, you know, five to eight trillion in, in balance sheet money that they've unloaded into the markets. And and they will have to raise rates in a weaker environment. And and so that's, that's kind of a pain point that people will feel. Um, it'll certainly maybe put the brakes, hopefully, on the housing market as someone who's from New York and, and kind of slow that down a little bit. Um, but I do think it will shift sentiment. I think still, you know, the, the biggest equity people still hold beyond their private equity holdings is their home, is their pensions, is their retirement assets. So there is sensitivity to public markets. And I do think the beginning of the year is indicative of the market trying to feel out you know, what's going on? What's the next catalyst for the leg up or the leg down? So um, I, I don't think these things operate in a vacuum. And I certainly do think that they are interlinked. We're running out of time on this story. So let's have one last thought on, um, we, I mentioned earlier that the Brex has hired a chief product officer from Meta. Do we think that's significant? Do we think we're going to see more, um, you know, s- scale ups, poaching talent from the from the, from the the tech giants? Um, Naz, Kate, you got a, either of you got a strong view on that? I think it's definitely a sign that they're that they're doubling down on on product expansion as opposed to maybe expanding in other ways, right? I think it's a signal that they're probably looking to go after bigger businesses and build out their product portfolio around that. Um, I think they've even made some comments to to that degree. I think it's really interesting that they're poaching from technology and not from banking or financial services, um, because it shows that that's really where their focus is on development, how they can solve problems through the tech. I believe they've built all of their tech in-house. So yeah, I mean, I I think it's really interesting and and I'll be interested to see sort of what comes out of it because I have a feeling that it's going to be geared toward larger companies and it's gonna be some, you know, really interesting technology-driven propositions. Fantastic, thank you. Okay, well, let's move on to our next story. And this one uh, we picked up or was covered by Business Wire and, and many other media. Um, and obviously, we're going to come to Zamim on this one. Um, but this is that Wahed has debuted the first Sharia compliant and ESG aware uh, exchange traded fund on NASDAQ. So Wahed, which is a financial investment company that aims to advance financial inclusion through accessible, affordable and values based investing, has launched the NASDAQ's first Sharia compliant and ESG-aware exchange-traded fund, ETF. The Wahed Dow Jones Islamic World ETF seeks long-term capital appreciation and looks to provide investors with access to international investments outside the States that seek to better align with their values. 
The new fund notably expands uh, where had screening beyond Sharia compliant or halal constituents by also filtering based on environmental, social and governance factors. So Salim, naturally we're going to come to you first on this one. So firstly, you know, congratulations, it's fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? What, what was the motivation behind it? Why was this so important? And can you explain a little bit more about the relationship between Sharia compliance and sort of environmental, social and governance? How do those two relate to each other? All good questions. I think the best launching pad into that discussion is kind of describing our our business model, what we do, right? So our app, as you mentioned, is focused on financial inclusion. I've spent a lot of my time at uh, you know, JP Morgan prior to this and a lot of times to, to really have private banking and elite efficient products, you know, they're pretty high minimums and it tends to be kind of a service that's reserved for you know, your high net worth, ultra high net worth clients. And so um, not that we don't want to service those clients, we gladly do, but we were also focused on, you know, low socioeconomic, middle socioeconomic as well. So that's why our minimums are $100 or whatever local currency to, to open up an account with us. And with that, you have exposure to everything. So what do we do exactly? Well, it's a long only portfolio. And depending on someone's uh, risk appetite derived from their income, their age, and behavioral sort of assessments, um, we'll put them in a very aggressive or very conservative portfolio. And within that, you know, there's exposure to, you know, commodities, stocks, and and sort of a Sharia compliant fixed income alternative referred to as a Sukuk. But uh, long story short, we have operations in the US, the UK, Malaysia, uh, Mauritius, and recently acquired licenses in Nigeria, Central Asia as well. Um, but what we invest in is is generally public equities across the world. And we'll gladly use third-party funds if we think they're competitive and as fiduciaries will result in ideal um, outcomes for our clients. So um, fast forwarding to the fund space, you know, when we were operating in the U.S., we noticed that there was no real, actually there was no Sharia compliant or Islamic equity ETF in the U.S. at all. And, uh, you know, that's as you guys know, with the proliferation of sort of the vanguards and the spiders and the black rocks of the world, that's really been the trend over the last few decades. I mean, there's trillions and trillions of dollars under custody under those houses for, for good reason. People, both in an academic, intuitive, and just on a fee for perspective, realize that passive index-based investing is really difficult to beat over the long term, particularly with lower fees and, and diversification across the hundreds of names. So we're no exception to that. And we launched the U.S. equity ETF in July 2019 um, under the ticker Halal, H-L-A-L, because because tickers are very important. Um, and, you know, that was U.S. equities. But the logical next step was, well, you know, the U.S. has had a great run up, but our clients will definitely need global equities as well. You know, you want to be diversified across regions, geographies, different economic cycles, different central bank policies and, and regimes. And so the logical next step for us was, well, we need global equities. And so uh, this fund was meant to sort of pair with that first fund to give you the complement of U.S., non-U.S. global exposure. And so it includes names from, you know, Western Europe, from the Middle East, from Australia, um, Eastern Asia, Hong Kong, Taiwan, you know, the semiconductor space, South Korea, and then China names by proxy as well, um, and India as well, obviously. And so um, it really gives our clients access to the rest of the world. Um, speaking from the very U.S.-centric place, the U.S. equities have been the place to be. You know, we think that coupling the two and diversifying is very important. So that's why we launched it. To kind of the last question of, well, what is faith-based? What is ESG? And and what are the differences? I, I do think that 
you know, there, there's a lot of chatter about ethical investing. Let's call it ethical from a broad umbrella, and let's unpack the different things under that. Um, there are faith-based funds, um, you know, Catholic funds here in the U.S. and 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 secular values-based funds, and and I do think that we are all trying to solve the same question, which is how do we invest our our wealth and generate wealth um, from sources we deem to be in line with our our views of the world and at a basic at a basic uh, level that that's that's it and i think some things are similar between the faith-based investing or the islamic and the issue you know weapons come up and there's a focus on you know uh, gaming and 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 sometimes alcohol and you know it's maybe some of the catholic claims will put more of a focus on on some religious hot topics and um, the ESG world will focus on environmental emissions and stuff like that, um, whereas the Islamic space will will be a little more punitive on on banks and and interest revenue and generating revenue off speculation, right? So if I had to draw that Venn diagram, I think you know it's like that, but there are differences on 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 each, and so you know generally it's a it's it's a negative screening world. You you set up sector screens and screens based on ratios in the Islamic finance space, and you know. Pairing that with ESG we felt was important. Um, people talk about ESG all the time, but I do think for how widely it's spoken about, there's not really a consensus on what it means. What does it mean? What are you trying to do? You'll have some folks say, well, I'm going to try to impact corporate behavior through proxy voting. Others saying, well, I'm going to omit this name and, and that'll show them, um, though it remains to be seen whether the numbers actually support that. Um, I think what we're trying to do is actually way simpler and way easier to understand. It's that if I can't own a business in quote unquote real life, if I can't generate income for my family and myself from a certain enterprise, I probably shouldn't be benefiting from those equities as well. And it's a very simple, very humble mandate in that aligning kind of your revenue and income sources with sources that are sort of in the real world permissible. Um, so uh, I'll pause for a second, but uh, any anything we should unpack before I get into kind of this fund in particular? Yeah, I think this is interesting. I'm I'm curious to get a perspective from um from from the others on is is this kind of thing o- overdue? I mean, I mean, you mentioned you know a couple of sort of Catholic funds and so on, and there are a few products out there for um, either investors who really care about their faith, or as you say, investors who care about the sort of ethics and so on. But is this something that now, and Kate, you think it's been neglected in the wider market that that you know haven't been that many options for um, either Muslim investors or you know investors of other faiths or other strong persuasions. I actually, when I when I hear about this or when I think about it, my mind immediately goes to affinity banking or or neo banks. Um, you know, in the U.S., we have so many neo banks now that are are building out services around specific communities. Um, you know, whether that be musicians, right, or, you know, very niche markets. And it seems like, you know, we talk about that a lot in the banking space, but we don't talk about it as much in the investing space. So I wonder if if you're right, if this is long overdue and, and will we see more of a trend toward that on the investing side as well as people look to manage all of their finances together? I certainly I certainly feel it has been an underserved sector, whether it's ethical or religious uh, banking or investing, and I do I do think there's a very interesting question about the overlap between the two. I I do feel they're seen as very distinct, so I am I am interesting in how they've been combined here. 
it, it does strike me that for many people, there will be a, a natural overlap between the two. The, the interesting point, of course, is about banking, because, you know, Samim, you, you, you said, of course, that, that your fund won't invest in, I think you said you won't invest in banks, because, of course, banks, almost by definition, are sort of breaking Islamic law because of, of, of the lending, which is, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is prohibited by Islam, correct? So banking is a tricky area. It is. It's, uh, we've almost taken it for granted that it's, that it's part of the, you know, just the infrastructure and the lifeblood of the economy and, and pricing money based on time and, and doing that. But there, there is sort of a sentiment that it hasn't always been that way. And it doesn't always have to be that way. And, you know, we actually did acquire a digital bank in the UK that will be rolling out soon where we won't be lending deposit bases and we won't have to worry about kind of clients worrying about, well, is my money being lended on the back end and, and being used to generate more, uh, more and more money. Um, so financials is something that we focus on because the debt and the interest element of it is just much more punitive in our belief system. Whereas, you know, somebody else might be like, well, who cares? Like, I'm, I'm way more focused on, you know, something with a, with a terrible, uh, you know, carbon footprint and, and some, you know, corporate governance practices. Um, I think that the tricky thing with these things, there's always a silver lining. I remember at JP Morgan, clients would always ask about socially responsible investing, but dollars rarely actually went into it. It was something that you'd bring into kind of a, a sales call. We'd discuss it. And then afterwards, it just kind of fade out. And the silver lining is always people are interested in this so long as the returns are competitive. Um, you know, I, I think people would not be so willing to jump into these things if, if the returns were supremely discounted versus the market. Um, and, and there are some cynics out there that say, well, just focus on making as much money as possible and use your money to do good. And, you know, this isn't really the realm for it. Obviously, I don't prescribe to kind of that extreme of it, but um, I do think being competitive and being market-oriented, both from a pricing and return perspective, is important. You know, uh, you know we can check the numbers after, but since inception, our U.S. equity fund has returned some uh, from July, mid-July 2019, returned, I believe, 75% total return, including dividends. And the S&P during the same period is up 63 64%. And not saying that that type of alpha is, is always going to continue. There will be some mean reversion depending on what sectors rally. But this is sort of definitive proof that, okay, this is market returns and some. And, and I don't necessarily have to pay a premium in order to be in line. And, and once that, that return element of it becomes agnostic, I think the switch flips into how can I make these more um, kosher or halal or ethical, quote unquote. Um, I think minus that, minus that sort of apples to apples on, on a return basis, I think people will be a lot more reluctant to really talk about it as widely as they're doing. And Kathy Wood's ARC fund, which is actually a faith-based fund also, you know, only got talked about because of how massive the returns were, right? I mean, the returns were so massive that all of a sudden the ethical part of it flipped. And I think had they not been, might not have been talked about so much. Kate and I have been nodding furiously while, you, while you've been talking. Kate, can I bring you in for that last bit? Do you, do you agree with that fundamental point that if the performance is there, people will will follow their beliefs, but perhaps if the performance isn't there, they, they might not so much? What do you think? I agree with that 100%. And I also think, you know, in the ESG space now, we're starting to see a lot more emphasis on that from data providers. So data providers that can use alternative inputs like headlines to pick up ESG signals. And really connecting, you know, performance to to ESG in a way that is meaningful. I think one of the the clearest examples of this is Facebook's stock performance following the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, that news broke, I think, first in March of 2018, 
But the stock didn't drop materially until later that year when the company revealed that its user growth was slowing. So in that particular instance, the material ESG event was actually the initial announcement related to Cambridge Analytica. Um, it just took a while for the financial impact to catch up and actually manifest in the stock price. So data providers that can identify things like that early on behalf of investors um, are the ones that can really generate that alpha and, and find those returns. And we're starting to see a lot more activity like that in the market. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. We're just going to take a quick pause here um, while you hear from our sponsors and we'll be back very shortly. Fintech Meetup is the world's largest fintech meetings only event. That's right, no speakers or content, just 3,000 participants having 30,000 online meetings that lead to deals, partnerships and funding. If you're a fintech, bank, investor, credit union or anyone else working in this space, you need to join. Fintech Meetup takes place online March 22nd to 24th. Go to www.fintechmeetup.com to learn more and get your ticket. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Okay, our next story also comes from TechCrunch, and this is that French business banking startup Quanto has raised 552 million at a 5 billion valuation. So this Series D funding round, which was led by Tiger Global and TCV, made it one of the largest rounds in the French uh, tech ecosystem. Quanto is a digital bank focused on business bank accounts, so not unlike Brex. Um, the startup focuses primarily on smaller medium companies as well as freelancers. It currently operates in France, Germany, Italy and Spain. Um, with 220,000 clients uh, so far, Quanto is planning to grow at a rapid pace over the next few years. Our goal, um, according to the CEO and co-founder Alexandra Prot, is to reach 1 million SMEs by 2025. So this is big news for French fintech. It's one of the largest rounds in the French tech ecosystem. Um, I think naturally I'm, I'm tempted to draw comparisons with with Brex because it's you know, kind of a peer sort of company. Um, what do what do we think of this, Kate? What do you think of, the, of this deal? Is this is this very similar story to Brex? Do you see differences? I think it's similar but different, right? I think one of the more interesting things for me about this story is that the strategy seems very different from Brex, because I suppose from what I've gathered in Europe, there's a much greater focus on, on bank accounts for small businesses than maybe for, for corporate cards. So it started there and then it's building out its ecosystem around that. Whereas Brex started with a corporate card and is building its ecosystem around that. It's added banking services and, and other things. So I think it's almost you know the reverse of what we're seeing here, but tailored for its specific market which I found really interesting. I also just love when a business banking startup begins to add value-added services. So things like bookkeeping, accounting, because I think, you know, those sorts of companies are really looking for everything under one roof. And we see that with the companies in the U.S. too. You know, Brex is doing similar things. 
trying to get, you know, everything you need, maybe outside of the, the traditional financial services onto one platform. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a big deal when you start to build an ecosystem and you provide a whole series of adjacent services to customers. That gradually makes the, the proposition more and more, more and more compelling. And of course, these guys have got a banking license because, you know, most of the most of the European banking startups have, not all of them, of course. Um, uh, Naz, do you uh, have you looked at Quanto? Do you think this is a you think this is an interesting interesting story? Do you think um, Quanto could become maybe the N twenty six or the Revolut of business banking in Europe? <laughs> I don't know the answer to the last question. Otherwise, I'd be investing. Um, <laughs> I know I do think it's an interesting story. I mean, I I think the focus on SME banking, both with Quanto but in general, is no accident. It's been a traditionally underserved sector kind of ignored for the large corporates and not quite re- and not retail um, so it has been a ripe target and it still continues to be how long that lasts before the field gets saturated I'm not sure so yeah I mean I think that would be my my main take on it you know yet, yet another person targeting the underserved SME space I think one of the interesting things here is is that seemingly they're looking at using some of this uh, money to try and e- expand into the United States. And I, it's possible I've, I've, I've got the wrong end of the stick here, but my, my understanding is that they're looking at potentially moving into the States, which has burnt many other European digital banks. Samim or Kate, do you think that would be mad for another European digital bank to try and break into the US market after the glorious successes to date? Or do you think there's still space for, for new? I mean, after all, the Brex founders are Brazilians, right, originally. Um, is there still space in the States for, for new entrants? So I think, yes, of, of course, there's space in the States for international fintechs. Many have come here and, and been very successful. I think it just depends on what your proposition is. Like I was saying before, what they've built in Europe is different from, you know, what similar providers here are offering. Similar but different, right? So can they think thoughtfully about this market and what from their core existing proposition would make sense here, what they might have to add, how they might have to adjust it in order to make it work? Um, if they attempt to just kind of pick up what they have and drop it down here, I don't think that will be successful. Um but yes, I, I certainly think that there is space, you know, if you have a thoughtful strategy behind it and you've really thought about the U.S. market and all of its many complexities. It is so interesting looking at the, looking at the differences between these two, you know, superficially similar businesses. Um, you know, the, the way that Brex has really started with the card, because the card is such an important part of the sort of not only American sort of psyche and American consumer behavior, but also American sort of corporate purchasing and so on by contrast with European markets where cards are much less important and Quanto started with very, very different products. So I think it's super interesting looking at how different the, the sort of details of the strategy are, even in superficially very similar businesses. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting because, you know, I think if you look at Quanto or indeed the next story when come on to it, you know, the differentiator is not the banking service. That's a bit that's common with everyone. The differentiator is the value-add services they give you to run your business or do to do whatever. So, you know, they're, they're always not making a banking play. They're making a run-your-business play, and the banking is, is the add-on, whereas we tend to think about it the other way around. Yes, you're right. We tend to think about, um, you know, the banks or fintechs adding value-added services, whereas actually what's really happening is that banking and payments are getting embedded into other things. Okay, shall we move on to our next story, 
in that case, as, as Naz has already previewed um, our, our next story. So we're going to jump forward into, into our next story. But just before I do that, um, we had a, a French uh, fintech episode uh, here on Fintech Insider a few episodes ago. So if you're keen to hear more about French fintech, uh, please go back and listen out uh, episode 567. So our next story uh, stays in Europe. Uh, this was reported in Finextra and various other media, which is that Revolut has launched as a bank in 10 Western European countries. Um, so the uh, European Digital Bank, uh, or, or European Super App, if you like, um, which has more than 18 million customers around the world, has taken advantage of its Lithuanian-based uh, European banking license to, uh, to passport and to become a bank in Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Iceland, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Spain, and Sweden. It's a rare mention for Liechtenstein on FinTech Insider News. Um, the firm's customers in these markets can now upgrade to the bank from within the Revolut app in a matter of minutes to secure deposit protection of up to 100,000 euros guaranteed by the Lithuanian state company deposit and in investment insurance scheme. Meanwhile, customers in Bulgaria, Croatia, Cyprus, Estonia, Greece, Latvia, Malta, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia um, have been able to upgrade since last March. But you'll notice in that long list of European countries, I didn't mention the UK, where it's not yet a bank. Um, Naz, we've, we've talked a couple of times here about um, bank licensing. How important is it for Revolut get that bank license, do you think? I think it's quite important. So I think this is very interesting, this story for me. So to me, you know, this is one of those first wave fintech challenges, making the move to sort of um, big boy banking as opposed to just side spending. So I think, um, you know, the real key will be, will this persuade people to start using Revolut and the such as their main bank account? as opposed to their bid on the side in banking terms. <laughs> if they can get that shift, then it opens up a whole world of, you know, frankly, cross-selling other products to these customers who now use them as their main bank. I think the convenience angle, you know, upgrading to a full bank account with the deposit protection in minutes would be their play there, obviously. You know, you've already got an account with us, now you can easily get a loan or mortgage or blah, blah, blah with us. So I I think in that respect it it will be very important. The one the one thing I would kind of caveat is uh, people need a reason to move and shift, um, and also um, you know even after the crash and all that's happened in the last twelve or thirteen years, you'd be surprised at how low recognition and understanding of compensation schemes is. So uh, you know it will be very it will make them much more attractive for some people. Will they need to do other things to get people to really use them as a main bank? Yes, this won't be enough. That was actually going to be my question, um, perhaps to Kate, because you're you're blessed by looking like you're the youngest of us. Um, do, you, do you think do you think younger customers care? And to Naz's point, do you think they almost know about sort of banking compensation schemes and really? know the difference between banks? I mean, are younger customers just looking for the most convenient solution to managing their finances? Or do they actually care whether there's a license scheme with protection and so on? So I think I'm probably 
like in terms of myself personally, the wrong person to ask because I'm in this stuff all day long. So yes, you know, I'm, I'm young, but I, I do care about it. Do I think broadly people are thinking about that? No, I think I'm one of maybe five people who, when I go onto a neobank website, scrolls to the bottom to see who the sponsor bank is. You know, I don't think, and in the U S that's, that's usually how it works, right? Uh, There's a, there's a sponsor bank for, for a neobank. But I don't think that that most younger customers, not only do they not care so much, but I don't think they know to think to care, I think is probably more the issue. They don't even know the, the right questions to ask. I don't know. Maybe I'm not giving them enough credit, but that would be kind of my instinct um, about younger generations broadly. Samim, what's your view here? And obviously, I appreciate that Islamic investors have, have different views on, on banks. Yeah, no, it's fair. And, and before I was kind of in the Islamic space, I was in the conventional one. Um, but to, to Naz's, I think two things. To Naz's point, the inertia of actually changing banks is is tremendous, right? I think, uh, you know, the reason people pick banks is because of low minimums, low fees, and what keeps them there essentially becomes the ecosystem of credit cards, cash transfers, um, the app, um, the ease with which they can deposit things. Um, so, you know, the inertia of changing a bank is, is tough. And whether you do that through ancillary services, through acquisitions, through um, more often than not referral schemes, you know, how many people have signed up for a Chase credit card because there was 100,000 points offered initially, uh, things like that really do help up. Yes, yeah, it's guilty as well. But things like that are are very expensive ways to get people in, but then, you know, the, the longevity in that customer tends to be pretty, pretty long. Um, that's one piece. As far as the, the digital side, it, it's always a, it's always a double-edged sword, right? Because, you know, an app or something that's sleek might appeal to sort of a younger demographic, um, but what's the average deposit balance of that young, younger demographic versus the, someone who's been working for 30, 40 years, right? And is the latter category impressed by the app or, or distrustful of it? Does it become something that makes them think it can be more easily compromised from a security perspective versus going in person and talking to somebody? So, you know, I, th- I think the user game and the young demographic game is important because eventually a lot when they become kind of the 40, 50 year olds, they will have the wealth. So maybe you're banking on a long-term story, but if you're looking at a quick pop, I don't know that that's necessarily the demographic with the money right now. And, and, and so it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, I think, uh, when you're talking about that conversation with banking, but banking is, is a really tough thing to crack and, and get into. And, and so, you know, uh, best of luck to them. Yeah. Great, great points. I, the other thing I thought was really interesting about this this Revolut story is that Revolut is starting to try and position itself as a as a super app, probably in response to the huge success of sort of Alipay, of WeChat in China, of um, Paytm in India, maybe even arguably of, of Tinkoff Bank in Russia, and going down this path a bit like you were talking about earlier, Kate, of sort of adding more and more value added services, bundling more things in with the banking service, or potentially bundling the banking into other services. Is that the right strategy? I mean, Revolut has been busy adding you know, crypto trading and rapidly deploying all sorts of new products, you know, impressively fast. Do you think that's the right strategy? Adding more and more capabilities and more and more propositions for customers within within one app? Do you think that's viable and success, likely to be successful? 
I think it could be viable depending on how you do it. What I worry about a lot when I read all these stories about Revolut is whether or not they're going to be able to stay focused. Um, and I mean, to their credit, it looks like they have not had a problem with that so far. Um, and they continue to, to see success and, and add users. But to Nas's point, I think a lot of, you know, what this is going to come down to is your ability to get users on your platform thinking of you as their hub and then cross-selling all those products to them. And that could be a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, right? Because do you use your, you know, huge product suite to attract them? Or do you get them thinking of you as, as their core financial provider and then begin to show them all the things that, that you have? So I think it can be done. Certainly, you know, it's been proven in other markets, but it's, it's going to come down to how thoughtfully you do it. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Naz, I want to come uh, come to you on this. I mean, Revolut does seem to be pulling off, as Kate said, an impressive feat of adding a whole load of new products while getting a banking license and so on. You know, they're they're managing an awful lot of complexity and seemingly keeping everything on the rails. Do you think they can continue doing that? Because they do seem to be sort of pulling ahead of some of the other European digital banks just because they can seem to be able to deal with so much change so quickly. Do you think they can continue that? So I think think they're Certainly one of the best positioned because of the size of their base. On the point we were discussing earlier, you know, I think that inertia point around the core banking service is why they are they're adopting this multi-pronged approach. I, I can't be bothered to mail bank to you, but I've reached a tipping point where I use you for so many other things that I might as well do. I don't know if about revolution and workers to possibly comment, but I'll be very interested to see when the first of the kind of first generation fintechs has a big regulatory scandal, which I promise you will happen to one of them at some stage, and kind of what what that does to the wider sector, you know, whether it's Revolut or someone else, um, I have no idea, but at some stage it will happen just because, you know, they will have been targeted as new startups just because that's the nature of how that part of the fin crime world work. So it, it will be interesting to see. I think for any lawyers hearing, I should just make it clear I'm casting no aspersions of revenue whatsoever. No, of course. But you're right that someone somewhere, you know, there are people out there who are t- busy trying to attack fintechs, trying to find weaknesses, trying to exploit them and so on. And probably there are a couple of employees within, you know, some fintechs somewhere around the world who are doing bad things, you know, knowingly doing bad things today, probably unbeknownst to their managers. But there's, you know, among all the fintechs out there, there's some bad things happening in a couple of them. And we just don't know which ones yet. Um, and yeah, it could be anywhere. Who knows? But you're making a really interesting point that when we get a big scandal in fintech, that's going to cause, um, maybe it's going to cause younger people to start caring about things like banking licenses and regulation. Or maybe less nefariously, you know, some spillover from this crypto stuff, right? You know, when, if we ever feel the ripples from that, um, even though it's an adjacent asset class and not really related, a lot of people are being pressured into offering it, you know, Fidelity is offering it in portfolios now and other people are doing it. And so who acquiesced to the pressure and who didn't? And then I think, you know, insofar this is a trust business, I think that's, there's certainly sentiment contagion, if not direct balance sheet contagion from that. Definitely. I feel there's another one of your market predictions in here, but super interesting point. Okay. So now we need to move to the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, um, but still deserve a shout out. Naz, do you want to get us started, please? Yep, thank you. So this first one's from Finextra. 
UK FS regulator takes aim at cloud giants. So the UK's Prudential Regulatory Authority, that's the PRA, is looking at ways to access more data from Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud amid concerns about how important the three have become to the financial services sector. With FS firms transferring ever greater amounts of data to the cloud giants, the PRA is concerned about the effect of outages and cyber attacks. We are looking at cloud providers in terms of operational resilience, said the PRA. We are beginning to see them as important third parties who need more oversight. Uh, that's from a PRA source talk, talking to the FT. In July, the Bank of England warned that additional policy measures may be required to mitigate financial stability risks from the growing concentration of power in the hands of global cloud providers. No kidding would be my short response to this. You know, I think cloud providers have been on the regulator's radar for a while, and there are actually kind of general rules on use of third parties that would cover them as well, that in theory should cover a lot of these points. I think what they're just beginning to wake up to now is just how embedded these are within the banking sector and how reliant banks are on them. Probably waking up to an issue that's actually been on the table for a few years would be my summary. Great stuff. Thank you. So our next story also comes from Finextra, and this is that City in the States is to sack unvaccinated staff at the end of the month, at the end of January. So Citigroup staff in the US who have not been vaccinated against COVID-19 by January the 14th will be placed on unpaid leave and fired at the end of the month unless they are granted an exemption. City is the first, I think it's the first bank uh, to mandate the jab as a requirement for employment. More than 90% of Citigroup employees have complied with the mandate so far, and that figure is rapidly rising. Not surprising if they're about to get fired. And the timing of the vaccination mandate is apparently going to be a little bit different for branch staff. According to the bank in a memo, you are welcome to apply for other roles at City in the future as long as you are compliant with City's vaccination policy. If you are not vaccinated, we urge you to get vaccinated as soon as possible. So obviously there are strong views on, on vaccination around the world with probably a majority of people coming down on the side of actually it's better to get vaccinated and get the disease. However, a couple of similar stories that uh, IKEA, the retailer in the UK, um, it's not proposing to fire people, but is, is proposing not to sort of pay sick leave to em- employees who come ill with it having refused vaccines. And then of course, tennis fans will know Novak Djokovic has uh, caused some little bit, a, bit, a little bit of embarrassment for both Serbia and Australia by um, traveling without being vaccinated and then not following the rules. But this is harsh. You know, this is this is really strong. I can see the point from Citibank's perspective of we, we don't want employees coming in and making other employees ill. But to fire people over this is, that's a big deal. I always think that, you know, American employees really don't have rights compared with European employees. But wow, um, that's a that's a really big deal. It'll be interesting to see if there's any kind of backlash on City because, you know, there's quite a few anti-vaxxers out there and they won't love that. But on balance, kind of, I like what City's trying to do, nudging people to get vaccinated, but firing them for it is seems to me a bit extreme. However, there we go. Moving on. Over to you, Nas. Thanks. So this next one's from Finextra. UK Parliament launches crypto group. The UK's Parliament has launched a cross-party group of MPs and Lords to cover the crypto and digital assets sector. The group will act as a forum for parliamentarians, policymakers, and the UK crypto sector to discuss policy and regulation of the industry. It will also look at addresses challenges for the sector 
including a regulatory framework that supports innovation and growth, addressing issues such as consumer protection and economic crime. Lisa Cameron MP, chair of the new group, says, we must ensure that we have an appropriate regulatory framework in the UK, which supports innovation and guarantees that the UK remains an attractive destination for innovative firms to set up and grow. An interesting question posed by this, which is, are MPs and laws the best people to evaluate crypto and digital assets? I mean, I suspect the answer from a technology point of view is, oh my God, no. However, I suspect they're the only people who can legislate on it. Um, Look, I think this is part of a trend that we've already seen start. And I think we will see pick up real pace during the course of this year and beyond around the regulation of crypto. I think we've seen a lot of smoke signals of this direction and movements here in the US and elsewhere. And I think you'll only gather pace. And I would say that's, you know, that's probably not just regulation of crypto from a pure regulatory sense, but, you know, banks also considering launching their own central uh, cryptocurrencies, again, edging into that space and kind of making it regulated, albeit indirectly in that latter example. So yes, not a surprise and something we'll see more of. Well said. I think it builds on the point Samim was making earlier about the, the risk of contagion from something bad happening in the, in the crypto world. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. And this is that a technical issue saw a bank accidentally hand out £130 million on Christmas morning. This came from the BBC News. Tens of thousands of people awoke on Christmas morning to a surprise from an unexpected benefactor, Santander. The bank mistakenly deposited £130 million into 75,000 accounts on the 25th of December. Santander and her staff are now rushing to claw back the money, although the job is being made more difficult because much of it was deposited in accounts at rival banks. The error occurred when payments from 2,000 business accounts were made twice. Santander said the mistake may have meant that some people were in effect paid twice from their employer's account, although the second payment was funded by Santander. Well, wasn't that nice of them? What do we think about this? How kind of Santander to give everyone a, a Christmas present? The old adage, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think people noticed right away or do you think it took people a while to sort of notice this? I, you know, I wonder if, you know, because it was Christmas Day, I wonder if it took the bank a bit longer to, to realise it to have done this massive gaffe. I feel bad for the payroll managers who had their holidays ruined. I mean, that must have been awful. Yeah, exactly. Because, of course, the payroll manager would think it was was his fault. So actually, interestingly, um, here at 11FS, um, we, as it happened, have an account with Santa Dara. actually had one of our subcontractors querying us because we had apparently paid them twice. Now, we hadn't paid them twice, but our finance team thought we had paid them twice and had to check. No, actually, we didn't pay them twice. It was Santander who very kindly paid them a second time. So yes, I think you're quite right, Kate. That's a lot of stress for a lot of payroll managers and finance managers on Christmas Day or, or immediately when they got back to work. Why, do, why does this keep happening? Why do banks' legacy systems keep doing things like this? I think because people are behind them. Yeah, I was going to say because they're legacy systems, probably. It <laughs> was a bit of a leading question, wasn't it? It will be very interesting because there will be a big group of people there who have spent it without realising. Yeah, what, what are the legalities? Do you, do you have to pay it back? I mean, if, if you end up with extra money in your account, is it kind of free money? Well, I mean, look, I think if you know it's been paid to you in error, you're technically holding it on trust for someone else and should not spend it. That is what my trust law from about 20 years ago tells me. <laughs> but I, I, you know, you're assuming that people regularly check their balance 
and aren't just spending and only look at it at the end of the month or whatever, then it's far murkier waters because, you know, what do you do if they spend it and they don't have it? I suspect you'll find they end up letting it go in quite a few individual cases. Do you really want to be the bank that causes someone to lose their home to reclaim your £2,000 mispayment to them? Or whatever the story will be. You rebrand as, as Grinch Bank for taking back money on Christmas Day. Exactly, exactly. I bet there were some pretty heated arguments inside Santander in the in the days after Christmas. Right, well, interesting, an interesting story. And I just um, wish I'd got one of those little bonuses, but there we go, I didn't. <laughs> okay, so that wraps up this week's uh, new show. Thank you so much, Kate and Samim. You've been absolutely fabulous guests. It's been a Absolute pleasure um, having you on. Where can people find out a, a bit more about you? And so let's go ladies first. So Kate, where can people find out more about you? You can find me on Twitter at KM Drew or on LinkedIn. Um, and all of our research at CCG is on ccginsights.com. Thank you. And Samim? You can find me personally on LinkedIn, but otherwise you can follow Wahid on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and you can visit our website at wahidinvest.com, select your jurisdiction to get more custom information relating to your region. Thank you. And Naz? This is why I have to admit that despite working for 11FS, I don't really do LinkedIn. So you would have to email me at nasa at 11FS.com. All right. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn or you can uh, find out more about us at 11fs.com. So a massive thank you to all of you for listening. Please join the conversation on uh, social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.